Hooray, hurrah. Once again, the smartest man in the world, Perpcast, takes to the ether here from the salubrious confines of the Fortress of Pruditude, located right near the Prudent of Pruditude, located right here near the Fortress of Pruditude. Uh, in Western Hollywood, uh, Jennifer's here, Ryan's here, Archie's here, and Jughead's here too. And we're having a, a Prooptastic disco uh, with Sylvester. Why Sylvester, you ask? Because uh, Dennis Perone, uh, the godfather, or what do they call him? The father of medicinal marijuana, uh, has uh, taken to the heavens and is swirling around. And we thought we'd start with a hometown hero. Uh, he was an activist who was from San Francisco for a long time. Let's see here. I'll read to you from the San Francisco paper. He was a force behind a San Francisco ordinance allowing medical marijuana, a win that later helped propel the 1996 passage of Prop 215, a Vietnam War veteran. He spent some of his last years on a 20-acre farm in the rolling hills of Lake County, growing and giving away what he once sold, medical marijuana. Uh, he did start a clinic in San Francisco that was highly illegal when he was there. Uh, took a shot in the leg from the cops for it and uh, was partners with a woman named, let's see here. I came to San Francisco to find love and change the world, Perone said. I found love only to lose him through AIDS. We changed the world. He was a gay kid from Long Island who joined the Air Force to get away from home as he wrote about himself. The first public cannabis dispensary in the country called the San Francisco Cannabis Buyers Club during the height of the U.S. drug war in 91. He, and this is, this is what I love about newspaper writing, he, comma, along with quotations, Brownie, Mary Rathbun, <laughs> we know her as Brownie Mary. Uh, she walked up and down the street and she wore like a little gingham outfit and she wore a bun and she carried a basket of goodies. <laughs> and you'd be like, hi, Brownie Mary. And she'd be like, hi, would you like a brownie? And you'd be like, yeah, I'd love a brownie. What were they, like $4 or something in those days? Yeah. And uh, sometimes she just gave them away, obviously. Um, and they were the strongest marijuana brownies in the world. You'd eat one and you'd be like, oh, my God. And then I'm upside down. Well, who are all these people? Um <laughs> Yeah, it was a fantastic experience. She often worked Castor Street and every single festival uh, on the uh, Castor Street Fair, Folsom Street Fair, uh, and just in general. It was the getup that got you there because it, she looked like someone you wrote letters to. Um, it was the tidy little bun and the um, apron, I think, that really did a lot of the did a lot of the work. Yeah, she did. She would, they're, they're both angels of mercy. Let's be honest. Uh, there was no help for uh, people with cancer and AIDS. In San Francisco then, uh, no legal help. And uh, he just did, thought it up and did it anyway. And they gave away tons of marijuana. And um, now look where we are. California, Nevada, uh, who is it? Who's coming in? Vermont, uh, Colorado, Washington, um, Denver, that huge state, uh, Portland state. Uh, a lot of the big states are jumping in. Uh, California, and it seemed to go quietly here, quite frankly. I don't know if anyone's noticed an uptick in their marijuana usage in this room. But... Um, <laughs> Uh, it, it didn't kind of clang out with the same fanfare it did in Nevada and uh, Colorado. And I think it's because of Dennis Perron. We ha we've had it so long here and it's been an issue since the 90s. And because we had legislation about it 20 years ago uh, that allowed medical marijuana before everyone else did. Um, no one's as panicky about running in and buying an ounce as they once were. Plus, uh, if you didn't have a connection here already, you have one. Um, let me put that backwards. If you didn't have one until these places opened, a lot of us already knew some people who knew some people who talked to a dude who had a business card. I'm not kidding. He'd laminated it. So I knew he was legit. And he put his area code on it, too. And that's how you know they're cool. So anyway, uh, that one's for Dennis Perone. And, uh, and always, we're always up for some Sylvester and Two Times of Fun, who, uh, for our musical friends, will remember, went on to do It's Raining Men as the Weather Girls, if that's the only way uh, I can get to you. Um, and if you don't know me by now... You, uh, you'll remember me from that. Uh, let's see what else is going on. Um, on another positive note, because uh, I am nothing if not uh, a raspberry cloud uh, of rising above the purple dawn, San Francisco will retroactively apply California's marijuana legalization laws to past criminal cases. Um, the DA of San Francisco has the awesome name of George Gascon. Um, sadly, it's not George Gascon. Uh, well, yeah, I guess you could say it that way. Um, and then here's a word that you rarely see, but that is, really needs to be put back into uh, common everyday usage. Expunging 
or reducing misdemeanor and felony convictions going back decades. Many things need to be expunged from our society. And I'm going to pronounce it society from now on and say the Twilight Zone with Rod Sterling just to make you annoyed. From our society, many things should be expunged. And one of them is the presence of older, rich white men. That would really, really zest things up around the old ranchero. Um, they're going to reduce that. This is what will happen. Uh, it will affect thousands of people whose marijuana convictions um, give them criminal histories that hurt chances for finding jobs and whatnot. Prop 64, uh, legalized recreational marijuana. That's in California. It also allows those with past marijuana convictions would have been lesser crimes or no crimes at all. But rather than leaving it up to the individuals to petition the courts, this is why I'm telling you this, which is time consuming. In other words, if you have a pop bust, you would have to go back to the court, say under Prop 64, I'm allowed to come back and appeal to you. Gascon, the DA said, prosecutors are going to review and wipe out all the convictions en masse, right? That's 3,000 misdemeanor convictions. And guess who most of the people are? That would be your black people because that's who gets busted in these things. So anytime you hear uh, Jefferson Beauregard Sessions, the third um, Republican Confederacy, uh, tell you uh, that he's going to come down hard on marijuana, that's what that's aimed at. Let's just get right to the bullseye on that one. It's not about any kind of moralizing and it's not about any concern for anybody being on drugs. Otherwise, uh, this whole opioid thing would get, as Jennifer complained today, to our neighborhood a little quicker. Um, Gascon made the announcement at a news conference, and uh, there was a couple of supervisors there, Malia Cohn and Jeff Shee. I- I'm disappointed in the San Francisco Board of Supervisors because they did not uphold uh, London Breed uh, as the uh, mayor, as she was interim mayor, and they elected a white guy. And to me, that's so dude, bro. I could just, ugh, I could just go to Fog City Diner and order something off the dessert menu right now. I could go up to Petro Hill and have the $8 French toast and throw it down in a big fit of peak. Um, I'm about to fucking design an app to show my frustration for this. And it's going gonna, it's gonna to be called Dudes Sympathize with Chicks too a lot. Uh, and... Uh, Advocates for poor and minority communities have long complained that marijuana laws are applied disproportionately to the impoverished and people of color. The ACLU did a study and found African-Americans were more than twice as likely to be arrested for marijuana possession as whites, despite similar levels of use in San Francisco. Hold on to your peaked hat. African-Americans were four times as likely to be arrested for possession. This study found nearly 5,000 people have petitioned courts to have their marijuana convictions expunged since it passed. Um, but now they're just going to go uh, wholesale, which I think is super groovy. Thank you, Jennifer, for pointing that out to me. You're super groovy too, as are all of my pop friends out there. And I thank you. Uh, there was an eclipse last night, speaking of marijuana. And uh, how did that happen? Well, one made the other happen. I don't know if you remember that album by Golden Earring, and you shouldn't because they were one of Scandinavia's least important groups. Um, Ace of Bass had better songs than Golden Earring. Thank you. Um, I saw the sign, and it opened up my mind. Was that Ace of Bass or was that? Yeah, it was. Thank you, Ryan. Jennifer's looking at me with contempt in her eyes right now. She's afraid I'm going to do Barbie Girl by Aqua, and I'm not. I think they were Danish anyway. Um, the eclipse was really cool last night. It was not only a super moon, it was a double moon um, with extra scoops. And it went devil moon at one point, and then it red dogged. So it was a pretty trippy. Uh, it was a, honestly a night jam-packed with celestial thrills. Um, we started watching early. Uh, Jennifer pointed out the moon in the sky as we were uh, piloting our, our barge home uh, during the, through the canals of uh, Western Hollywood here. And I ha- we have a P-Row, and uh, our faithful um, Munt Jack Kippy was in the front, you know, <coughs> and we were pulling on down the, the bio here, and uh, Jennifer, Jennifer says to me, Greg, she says, uh, looky on there, uh, the old moon. And it was triple size big yesterday, uh, pancake big, like really big, a big, giant, white, um, disc hanging and then rising. And because it's so big, it seems to rise faster and gives you the optical illusion that the moon is actually rising so fast you can see it rise. And um, then you realize it's true. You, you're high and you can see it go that high uh, and that fast because you are. Um, so right around uh, nighttime, uh, we were watching some uh, fine vintage television together. And uh, I says, let's go out and back and look. But it was too early. There was, the moon was up, but it hadn't reached eclipse levels. Uh, so I phoned NASA and lodged a terrible complaint. I'm like, you look, I'm very, very busy. And I appreciate that the sky goes at its own pace. But um, I'm trying to watch this Galileo thing on Netflix. By the way, there is no Galileo thing on Netflix. But you should watch it. It's super good. It's made from Italy. It's made from Italians. That's how they make Galileos. And um, 
so, uh, uh, anyways, we go back out uh, later. Of course, I woke up in the night um, because I'm, I'm almost completely controlled by the uh, the the you know the phases of the moon. Um, late at night, when the moon is still uh, and slightly rising in a giant, super fine, superfood form, I uh, I take uh, the, I take guises, various guises. Uh, obviously, Moonjack is one of them. Uh, Frisky unicorn pony. Um, it's not a full-grown unicorn pony, so my horn is somewhat smaller and disappointingly narwhal-like, and it's a curvy, what are the spiral? I guess they call it. So, anyways, I I woke up to graze, and I uh, I goes out to look at the moon again, and there it is, um, darkening along the top in that weird crescent, and now it looks elongated and uh, unfeasible. And then I carried on watching as long as I could, but eventually sleep overtook me, and uh, I lay right there uh, with but my pointed slippers and my robes about me. Uh, when I woke up later, uh, two of the servants had uh, made a huckleberry jam kind of souffle thing, and I, in any case, uh, uh, then I'd seen that it had gone further, and now it was completely covered. Uh, so I, I woke up at those two phases of the moon's eclipse last night, and it was stranger and stranger. And I actually... Um, Gave over secrets of a treasure that I'd been hoarding um, uh, for past, I don't know, two, three thousand years. It's been in my family, uh, the Pruparians and then the Prupskillians. They go back. It goes back a long ways. Um, do you know those giant heads in Turkey that uh, you always see in the ads? Like, oh, come to Turkey and like, uh, as if you get off the plane and there's a giant eagle head that's 18 feet tall buried in the sand next to you or whatever. Um, my people weren't there. But if they had been, uh, they would have given up the secret that I did when they saw the moon almost fully eclipsed last night. It was a... Um, what I'm getting at is this. Uh, Thoreau is right. Um, not about everything. Uh, because next to Karl Marx and Frederick Ingalls, I don't think anyone avoided work more than Thoreau. Um, uh, I mean, I'm lazy, but I will go to work, if you know what I mean. Isn't this kind of work for you? Mm, yeah, uh, that's what I mean. Uh, but I'll, I'll go to work at night. I'll, I'll do a set, whatnot. Uh, I'll, I'll uh, write some comedy. I'll crack off a broadcast. I'll do my job. Um, Thoreau, I don't think, mm -mm. writing in a book, maybe dangling his feet in the water for a while. He's the kind of guy who would like play with a bird for like a year. Um, and Thoreau said this, because he was quite a poet as well. Well, I don't know if he was a poet, but he was, he was quite eloquent about how important being unemployed is. Um, what was it? Don't, don't join any endeavor that requires new shoes or something like that. Uh, what are light and shade, day and night, ocean and stars, earthquake and eclipse? The works of man are swallowed up in the immensity of nature. Um, and I was thinking about that last night because um, some of the works of man were on display on TV. And uh, some of them were terrible, terrible hue. And uh, the others, uh, of unlike hue but supporting another hue, um, were applauding. And it was an awful display. And it was the kind that brings your heart down to the ground. So I thought watching the eclipse wasn't the worst thing I could do with my time uh, in so much as something actually happened. Uh, and that patch grew back on my neck. Uh, there was an awful uh, thing that happened this week, and it's a, a celebration of, uh, it's an award show. Um, all award shows, as you know, are, are why are, uh, do they exist is always my question. I, I do a lot of corporate gigs where they give out like um, prizes to the end of the year for the person who sold the most things or whatever kind of corporation it is. Um, the the, uh, the Oscars and the Grammys and the Emmys and all that, you're supposed to make good stuff. That That's the point, is that you're trying to make something that's quality that people like. Um, uh, and yet uh, they reward themselves by having a really, truly awful TV show about it. Uh, it's, it doesn't seem to make any sense. Why the Grammys isn't some awesome recorded event or some two-hour concert uh, which seems like it would be a kind of a better idea. Go like, here's all the great country and here. Well, there, no one's going to say that, but here's all the great, uh, you know, K-pop or well, I don't know what the fuck was on the Grammys anymore. There's a lot of hip hop. That is an improvement, but no women. And it's as sexist as can be. And it's as racist as can be. And it always was when I was little and the Beatles were really popular. They would have like the Herb Alpert and the Tijuana Brass or the Baja Marimba Band on or something, which were groups of people pretending to be Mexicans, which is just beyond measure. 
It was never the hippest gang uh, over at the Grammys. Uh, Jennifer gave me this list. According to Eric Alpert, Billboard, these artists have never won a Grammy. The Who, Janis Joplin, Queen, Jimi Hendrix, The Velvet Underground, The Ramones, Snoop, and Bjork. So I think you get the idea here. When Jimi Hendrix and The Who can't get a look in, when Janice and Bjork can't get a look in, Snoop, how many records does a guy have to sell around here? Let me just ask you that. By the way, according to this, it's Velvet Underground. It's not The Velvet Underground, is it? It is The Velvet Underground. I thought it was The Velvet Underground. The list you gave me issues the preposition and goes directly to The Velvet, which is something I urge you to do the next time you're in a position to <laughs> delve into The Velvet. Delve into The Velvet. Wrap yourself in the velvet, delve it. Uh, Patty Murray uh, is uh, one of the great, great rock musicians of all time, and she's in Heart. And uh, no, she's a senator from Washington. And um, cold late night so long ago when I was not so strong, you know. When a man came to me, never seen as so blue. Uh, that song was always hard to take, even as a teenager. I don't know. If you're a woman, that one had to be hard, harder to take. He's a magic man. He's got the magic hands. Um, Senator Patty Murray's from Washington State, where I believe Hard is from. Are they from Vancouver? She wrote this about the uh, um, State of the Union, which people insist on calling the SOTU all the time now, like the SCOTUS and the POTUS and the FLOTUS. I have time to say president, um, not, not now and not for the foreseeable future, but I do have time in case that happens again, in case someone who's not a white older guy is elected to the office in the near future, then I'll have time to say president again. But I don't want to say SCOTUS or SCROTUS. I'll say SCROTUS. Let's call it the SCROTUS from now on, shall we? Um, and the Pitotis. Senator Patty Murray uh, is a good senator, and she said, why, do, why is she a good senator, Greg? Um, she cares about human beings. Um, the poor aren't just chattel to her. She doesn't always vote in her own self-interest. She believes there is an investigation uh, of collusion with Russia. Um, she voted for the sanctions last night. Uh, uh, Pitotis uh, T. Rump didn't mention women once during his historically long State of the Union speech. Um, well noted, Senator Murray. It's uh, the year of the woman. Uh, over 500 women are running for office this year so far. I'm going to get into that in a second. I know we've talked about it before, but I'm talking about it again. Um, women are braver than they ever were. The uh, U.S. gymnastics team, um, all of the women who have come forward in every industry, um, publishing uh, and, of course, uh, the fine acting industry that we all uh, know to be so upstanding here in Hollywood. Um, let me put it this way. Show business is really, really shallow and people will do anything to protect their jobs. So the fact that anything is happening is cataclysmic. Look at it that way. Everything is forward movement. Um, We've also found out that every single head of every single newsroom in the country, every single head of every single news department for every TV station, um, gee willikers, uh, it's really, a, as James Brown once said, it's a man's world, but it wouldn't be nothing without a woman or a girl. Um, an interesting approach given the year he spent pushing his anti-woman agenda. And then she put a little timeline here, excuse me, called Trump's War on Women. And I wanted to read, uh, read a couple of them uh, January 13, 2017, Trump nominated Neil Gorsuch to the Supreme Court, a judge who threatens the future of women's health and rights. Uh, April 13th, Trump signed a law removing Title X protections for access to family planning, care, cancer, and other disease screenings and treatments. Um, October 6th, President Trump announced a new policy that would allow employees to decide whether birth control should be included as part of a woman's health coverage. None of this has happened to men, by the way. Um, men can still get Viagra, even in the military, on their insurance. Um, I think Senator Murray has a very good point here. He didn't mention women because they don't exist in his world. He threw a couple of them in, in the cabinet because he understands that you have to. Um, you may have noticed uh, when he was in Switzerland uh, that there wasn't a lot of uh, women hanging around the group. Um, generally, the pictures were of groups of white guys. That's what he's comfortable being in because he's a white supremacist supporter of white billionaires who is supported in turn by white billionaires and, of course, uh, all the evil forces that be uh, from over the Urals. Uh, the cry of the Volga boatman is what he goes to sleep to every night. Let me put it that way. When, it, when Orange 45 closes his eyes, he hears thun, 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 and it's like sweet, sweet, sweet angel singing in a cherubic choir. 
uh, as uncircumcised members come raining down upon him in his dreams. In any case, uh, she makes a very good point. All issues are women's issues. Everything that's going on in the world can be solved by treating women differently. And we have a president uh, with an asterisk on him who is um, a known uh, predator of women, accused by many women of uh, being a predator on them. We know for a fact now that he paid off a porn star uh, $130,000 after he had sex with her and offered another porn star $10,000 to have a party in his room. If you're not repulsed, you should be because you wouldn't accept this from a comedian. You wouldn't accept this from uh, a newspaper editor. You wouldn't accept this from the host of the Prairie Home Companion or the uh, um, NBC morning uh, TV show. Uh, and running along that tack, uh, Steve Wynn, who was head of the RNC's uh, donations, uh, gave them tons of money. Um, when, uh, when Harvey Weinstein got nailed, they demanded the Democrats give back all the money, which they did. Um, the Republican Party hasn't done anything of the sort because you can't look to them for any sort of moral barometer anymore. There's no bottom of the barrel. Yes, I'd love a Reese's peanut butter cup. Um, thank you. There's no bottom of the barrel anymore. Uh, they'll collude. They'll do traitorous activities. They'll obstruct justice. They'll uh, murder on the press. They'll incite racial violence. They'll um, hammer on women's rights. They'll destroy uh, the poorest safety net. They'll let the environment be sold off to the highest bidder. They'll let the air and the water be poisoned. They'll do all these things with very little looking back and no regret right now. So understand the playing field. In a way, it makes it easier because you can see what they're doing and there's no, you know, no more filling it up with fine rhetoric or words. Paul Ryan, the House Majority Leader, said to yesterday, that the FBI needs to be cleansed. Cleansed was the word he used. Um, now we're into Soviet territory. We're into, dare I say it, Nazi territory. We're into Pol Pot, Saddam Hussein, uh, Idi Amin. I can think of lots and lots of dictators who use the word cleansed. Slobodan Milosevic comes to mind. Um, it means a cleansing of the press and then eventually a cleansing of people. If you listen to the content of which there was none last night, um, mostly you'll notice it was white supremacist, white nationalist, crazy theories um, about murder and mayhem that um, they perceive as being committed by groups coming into the country, which of course isn't the case at all. And it's very difficult for him to tell the truth. So why you would want to watch an entire speech by him when you could watch a lunar eclipse for eight hours uh, really uh, blew my mind. Steve Wynn not only had a, a locked room that he brought women into, he had German shepherds that he commanded in German. And the woman in question uh, um, insists that he, uh, he forced himself to have sex with her, forced himself upon her, then paid her off for it later. I believe she cried during the process at one point, and um, also dogs, the guard dogs were there to make her scared. So if this is the kind of person that you want as the public face of your party and basically the chief fundraiser and uh, an early, early supporter of the 45 campaign, which makes me ask a lot of questions, of course, um, he did resign, and that'll give you an idea. If you want to know how good things are right now, when you were thinking how bad they were, the Me Too movement, the Time's Up movement, the women being empowered right now is so strong and so overwhelming a tidal wave that Steve Wynn stood down. He wouldn't have once upon a time, and I'm very serious about that. He wouldn't have. Roy Moore wouldn't have lost once upon a time. Uh, Roy Moore, by the way, as Jennifer pointed out to me this morning, still has not conceded the senatorship. <laughs> of, no, he has never once said, I, I congratulate my opponent, Doug Jones, on his victory. And that's not going to happen because there's a party going on in his mind. And it's uh, the cast of Green Acres. And uh, I don't know if you've ever been to Stone Mountain, Georgia, where they've got all the Confederate generals <laughs> carved in the mountain. That's what it looks like inside his mind. And that's how he sees himself. And he's run, riding a horse uh, with his little leather vest on, firing his guns off while Stonewall Jackson rides behind him, whispering his name over and over again. Uh, and then uh, some Johnny Horton plays and shit. Hats off to Johnny. Boom. Freedom. Uh, we are going to be all over the place. Um, did, will this go out before Thursday night, Ryan? Um, it can. All right. If it goes out tonight or tomorrow, it will. 
Yes, Lady Parts Justice League is putting on a telethon tomorrow. Or today, if it is. Thursday, in any case. Uh, and you can go to, let's see, where is it? Um, oh, go to their website. Or go to Lady Parts Justice, on, at Lady P Justice, on Twitter. And, uh, or you can go to my Twitter feed. It's all over there. It's called Life is a Living Nightmare. <laughs> a telethon to fix it. And it's uh, February 1st at 6 p.m. L.A. time. 6 p.m. L.A. time. So it'll be later your time. And it has Sarah Silverman, Mark Hamill. That's right, Mark Hamill. Luke Skywalker is going to be there, you guys. Um, Rachel Bloom, Cameron Esposito, Rhea Butcher, uh, Frangella, Eliza, Eliza Skinner, Andy Richter, Jackie Cation, Chelsea Kane, Dr. Willie Parker, the heroic doctor um, who performs abortions all over the country for and is a real humanitarian. Liz Winstead, Amy Brenneman, Aida Rodriguez, Amy Hagstrom-Miller, uh, Kate Michucci, um, Mikuchi, excuse me, Brian Unger, Naomi Ekperigan, sorry, um, some of the pronunciation here, Jenny Yang, uh, Representative Stacey Newman, Eunice P. Justice, and me, we'll all be there um, telling jokes, hanging out, selling stuff. Mark Hamill's making some giant crafts project that's going to be pretty wild. Uh, I don't know if I'm supposed to blow the bag on that one or if it's a secret, uh, but it, it's going to be a, a groovy affair. Uh, no, you can't come. Uh, we're keeping it at a secret um, location because the people who oppose things like this are often um, zany and the brainy. B-I-T dot L-Y slash L-P-J telethon ticks is uh, where you can get tickets. Bitly, basically, L-P-J telethon ticks. Run out there and do what you have to do. On the 4th of February, we'll be at Bar Lubitsch in Western Hollywood. Um, which is really next to the Voda Spa, let's be honest. I always say it's next to the Pleasure Chest. The Pleasure Chest is maybe 100 yards down on the right. You can see it because it's February now or February, and they've got their giant red heart on outside. Um, that'll be 8 o'clock on the 4th, and we're back at Bar Lubitsch again uh, on the 18th. Uh, and they're both free. They're both at 8 o'clock. They're both free. They're both at 8 o'clock. How much does it cost? It's free. What time is it at? 8 o'clock. It's in the back room. Um, don't You can go to the front bar, get yourself a drink, and then nip to the back where you'll hear, what, last time we had reggae music playing? Which was weird. I guess I'm getting more open-minded my old age. Uh, it's not that I don't like reggae music. I love reggae music. It's just that Ryan had it playing when I walked in. And usually I'll flip on funk music. And I was like, let's get into a reggae bag. And I think it really lent a lot to the proceedings. Uh, I know that I presided over a marriage after the show was over. And the woman who gave us the Hillary Clinton onesie gave us a really lovely bottle of vodka, which was really sweet of her. So she's come through twice, once with a Hillary Clinton onesie and once with a bottle of vodka. So you have a place in my heart. Um, then we'll be in, oh, I'm on the road for like mad with who's live anyway. But first, let me run down where we're going to be with the podcast. We'll be at the Throckmorton Theater in Mill Valley on the 28th of February. And then we'll be, uh, we were not doing Portland, sadly. Um, I had to move that because we've got who's live anyway dates uh, that I cleverly booked over. However, I will be in Seattle for my Portland friends. You can drive up. It's only an hour and a half. On the 12th, that's um, Monday, uh, I'll be at the Crocodile, um, where you can watch, as I've discussed uh, several times on the show, um, Burning Embers set an entire garbage can of light um, inside the restaurant while you're standing outside smoking a joint. I don't promise that that'll happen when I'm there, but it certainly did the last time I was there. And as I say, the pizza's not bad. It is, it's wood-fired pizza, which is what led to this whole thing, because they threw the wood into a regular rubbish bin, and it set the goddamn thing on fire while I was standing there high-watching it. And then I had to report it to the authorities in the kitchen. I was like, kitchen authorities, the thing is on fire. Uh, and they said, we don't need no water. That's, that'll be at the Crocodile on the 12th. It's always a good time in, in Seattle. Um, by the way, um, Washington State and uh, Planned Parenthood of Seattle will be there as well. They've already confirmed. So we'll have a Planned Parenthood table there. Um, you can donate to them. If you have no money, you can uh, volunteer with them. And if you don't want either of those things, they'll usually have condoms and fun tchotchkes. So you can pick up some swag and stuff. So it's a good deal all the way around. Then we'll be in San Diego at the Great American Comedy Company. Is it the Great American Comedy Company? It is. I always want to call it something else. Uh, and we're going to do a podcast there on the 22nd. That's March 22nd. Then stand up on the 23rd and 24th. Um, only one show on the Friday. So it's nice, easy a lot of, Jennifer and I are looking forward to it because um, San Diego means two things. Uh, the Wild Animal Park, which you can't keep Jennifer out of, and um, uh, fish, fish tacos. Um, I used to do gigging off of, uh, in Pacific Beach, there was a, an improv there in the, in the 80s. And uh, some people who are infamous now, once upon a time, worked there. But in any case, um, uh, 
that, that was quite close to the first fish taco place I remember going to and uh, coming back and reporting to San Francisco that the fish taco situation in San Diego was indeed a loft. Um, mind you, uh, I'm not going to say anything bad about San Diego because I want you guys to come out and see the show. Um, was that, were you thinking of saying something bad about San Diego? It's not always politically to my taste. Let me just put it that way. I'm a little more of a San Francisco girl than I am a San Diego girl. But I will say that San Diego led the charge, um, the fish taco forefront, uh, more, I think more, more than any other city I can think of, really. I mean, who before then went, I'm going to put cabbage with crema and sell it to surfer dudes. There was this little weird shock at the end of Garnet. I remember I tried to take you there, but it was closed. We went to another one in any case. Well, Mexico led the way, but I'm just saying in my limited white people experience, I, you know, Jennifer, when I was a fisherman in Baja uh, in the 30s, I used to, me and Spencer Tracy, we, 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 we hunted for tiburon, that means shark. And um, we only used a line and we would talk about DiMaggio and how great he was. And, uh, you know, you can read about it. There's a book they wrote about me called The Old Man in the Sea. And uh, it's full of proofs and uh, the sea. And uh, you, I guess you're right. I, I really should have mentioned my earlier experience when I was drinking um, rum daiquiris in Mexico or drinking mes- maguey is it uh, when I first went to Mexico with uh, Cortez's men we had to fight our way from the coast and uh, a lot of times we were presented with things we hadn't had before like pineapples or you know uh, bong rips and that was one of them and you're right uh, Baja would have something to say about that uh, you caught me um, that means uh, we're not going for fish tacos when we're in San Diego. Instead, we're going to go to that really wild mall that we went to with the sci-fi bookstores that has the world's biggest Middle Eastern supermarket. Yeah, uh, that's in San Diego, too. All right. I was a little harsh on San Diego. Yeah, there's the world's biggest. It's not. I mean, I'm making that up. Bakery. Bakery. Uh, it's like the thermometer that's in the city Baker on the way to Las Vegas. It says the world's largest thermometer, but really it's the world's largest disappointment because it's not a giant mercury thermometer filled with hundreds of thousands of gallons of mercury. It's simply a thermometer that says like 70, 80 with numerals on it. But it's tall. And so you're supposed to be like, fuck, they put this big thermometer there and it'll be like 89. And you're like, well, what? no, no. I want an enormous, like Copernican, you know, something unfeasible and dangerous renaissance. Something that Leonardo would have designed since you're so down on Leonardo that he... Always came up with things that were unfeasible because they never worked, which is true a good deal of the time. A big Leonardo device, like from one of his notebooks, there's a spiral crank and a thing and it's, you know, it's 30 meters tall and it requires a billion gallons of mercury and just transporting the mercury would kill every donkey in Italy or whatever. These are the kind of things he came up with, right? Like we're going to have a, we're going to have a cannon that shoots 18 ways at once and it requires 42 guys to work it. And then what was it that you've seen the tank, the drawing of the tank? And you're like, how are we moving this? <laughs> also, it's almost certain, and I only know this because I've been reading about, a lot about Leonardo lately, that he got someone to try to fly. He had a guy jump off a, a mountain. That It's not like all the way certain that he did it, but um, uh, several authors are kind of like, he talked about it an awful lot. And he did come up with a design, and I think it was a wing-flapping powered machine. I'm not kidding. And I think the idea was you were going to run hard enough and be able to generate it. He knew how birds flew. He had a scientific mind. He'd watched the lift. He dissected the feathers, as you know. His anatomy is unsurpassed. His work as an anatomist, having seen his drawings of the anatomy up close, Jennifer, I'm directing all of this at you, at Hollywood Palace, uh, he spent several years doing that. And his aren't fanciful at all. They are like an x-ray almost. They're astoundingly photorealistic. Uh, like Vesalius. And um, even Michelangelo's anatomical drawings are imbued with a little more poetry. than I'm not saying the poetry is not in Leonardo's. It's the accuracy that is the... But I really do think he made some poor guy named Ronaldo get in a bird outfit and jump in the air. And I think that is exciting and needs to be explored more. And that's my new miniseries for Netflix. I want to know what every genius wanted to do that was just not going to bloody work. Uh, We'll be at the Throckmorton, the Crocodile, San Diego. The fish tacos are back in play, by the way, in case you were wondering. Then we'll be in Philadelphia. uh, You might cut out some of that. Uh, the 29th, we'll be in Philadelphia the 29th through the 31st of March. 
The 29th is the podcast. That's at the Helium Club in Philadelphia. Yes, I'll work on getting uh, Philadelphia um, Planned Parenthood and Philadelphia Freedom into the mix there. Then we'll be in Canada at uh, the Halifax Comedy Festival, the 25th to the 28th of uh, April. And the podcast will be on the 26th at the Carlton Bar. And I'm really looking forward to that. I think uh, it's going to be fun. I supposedly will have two new 10-minute sets for TV there. So I'm looking forward to you looking forward to that. We're all looking forward to it. Whose Line Is It Anyway is on the road. Under the guise of Who's Live Anyway, uh, we're on the road. That's Ryan Stiles, Joel Murray, uh, Jeff Davis, Bob Durkatch as uh, our band leader, and me. Uh, we're at the Hard Rock Casino on the 22nd of February um, in Coquitlam, B.C. 22nd and 23rd there, and then back in Richmond, B.C. at the River Rock Casino on the 24th. Then we're on the road in March, uh, the dates I was going to do in Portland. We're in Sacramento, Walnut Creek. And Sacramento again, because we sold so many tickets, and then back in Monterey. That's the 7th, 8th, 9th, and 10th. You can go to Who's Live anyway. We're on the road in March, February, March, April, and May. And we're going all over this fine country of ours, including Cleveland, Ohio, Cincinnati, Chicago. We're going to be in Chicago since someone asked on April 17th um, at the City Winery. And uh, then we'll be in, I'm not kidding, St. Louis and Kansas City and Atlanta. We're going to the South again, which we rarely do. So you can catch us in Atlanta and North Carolina. Who's live anyway is where you uh, find the, uh, the groove. Jennifer was given a gift. Uh, our great friend Jack in San Francisco, who I've worked with over the years. Uh, Jack is a, an excellent uh, producer and director. And um, he had me in a movie years ago called Cain and the Prophecy. What was that, Greg? It was an animated feature that no one on earth saw because it was one of the most wildly unsuccessful sci-fi animated features of all time. Um, the producers were French and they were dead nice. In the movie was, I'm not kidding, Kirsten Dunst, Mike McShane, and it was Richard Harris last, I think, one of the last things he did. So I'm in a movie with Richard Harris. Did you work cheek by jaw with him side by side? Yes. Uh, we drank pints of imaginary beer together and we had imaginary conversations about his great, fabulous career together. And Jack sent me, uh, and Jennifer more precisely, uh, a lovely present, uh, Jacob Astorius, Truth, Liberty, and Soul, live in New York, and I can't, a complete 1982 NPR Jazz Alive recording. It's in a giant box here. I'm waving it at you. You can't hear it. And um, there's three albums inside there. We haven't spun it yet, but it looks fantastic. And from everything we hear, it's the living end. So if you're a jazz fan, it's out uh, now, finally. It's just released, actually. And Jacob Astorius um, was an unusual uh, jazz musician in so much as he would play the bass uh, as, as many kinds of instrument. And two, uh, you'll know him from Weather Report, obviously. When Jennifer saw him, what, he poured sand on the floor and did a dance? Yeah. So he was out there. Jacob Astorius is definitely worth giving a listen to. Let's get back to a couple of things here. Um, yes, the, uh, that, the, the um, SOTU was last night and um, highly disappointing affair. I, I didn't watch it and I, I realized that um, uh, it's, it's almost impossible to digest how um, exponentially awful this week has been as far as intrigue and uh, malfeasance and malpractice and an absolute disregard for the Constitution. And that's just starting with Paul Ryan and Mitch McConnell. Um, when you work your way up to the White House, um, it's been one of the most shocking weeks. Um, this is kind of an 1850s situation we're in now, where white supremacists have control. Um, they don't really have a lot of loyalty to anything except their white supremacy. They're not offering any other kind of policy except that. Um, nothing positive is coming out of anything. And they're trying to block the investigation that's going to unseat them. Uh, and the investigation obviously is full steam ahead and getting quite close. And as I pointed out before, if you still think there's no uh, evidence, um, two people are in, uh, d- four people are indicted, two convicted of felonies so far. Uh, and we haven't really hit um, full investigative stride here. And Melissa McEwen at Shakespeare quotes the New York Times at the White House and among Republicans on Capitol Hill. There's a keen awareness that Mr. T benefits from extraordinarily low expectations of his ability to stay on message and deliver a coherent speech. Given his tendency to ramble off script and insert divisive notes, insulting asides and mystifying non sequiturs that almost always overshadow the topic at hand. Given that, officials believe the president will be judged a success in many quarters as long as he reads faithfully from his script, uh, which he did for an hour and what seemed to be two or three eons. And Nancy Pelosi said um, they're going to give him good reviews if he doesn't, what was it, have his nose running and burp? Um, the, if you want to know what um, white male privilege is, him speaking 
um, as a world leader is white male privilege. There's never been a lower bar, um, a more, someone more insipid and insidious. Let's see here. Um, all through the uh, last week, we've seen uh, Russia get a lot of its way. The sanctions not um, observed that had been voted into law, which is a terrible breach of the Constitution. Uh, one of the articles of the Constitution makes the president swear that he will uphold the law. Um, not just ignore it and abrogate it. So we're into that kind of, um, um, you know, 1980s Central American dictator kind of feel here. Uh, let's see. Melissa McEwen at Shakespeare wrote this. Let's be very clear about what's happened. The U.S. president has asserted himself as an authoritarian and fundamentally undermined the basic tenets of U.S. democracy in order to do the bidding of the Russians while his party uses their majority in Congress to try to discredit or outright quash investigations into that president's collusion with the Russians. The collusion is right out in the open. She ends on a note of despair. I don't. I don't think we know what the eventual uh, legal ramifications of all this would be. We do know one thing, uh, that people are organized like they've never been organized before. And this is from the New York Daily News from two days ago. There's going to be 526 female challengers and incumbents, most of them Democrats, on the, in the November midterm elections. 395 women were candidates for the House, 72 seeking re-election. Um, among them are 317 Democrats, 38 female challengers to the Senate, and 12 incumbent women are running again. In governorship races, 48 Democratic women and 31 female Republicans are up for office. The organization Emily's List which backs Democratic female candidates who support pro-choice legislation, reported it saw a huge uptick in information um, requests from women after the 2016 presidential election. Um, over the span of a month, 1,000 women seeking advice about running for office. So that's happening. Um, notice what's happened with transsexual people and people of color uh, running uh, for office and winning. I received an email uh, just the other day about the, and I think you mentioned it to me as well, Jennifer, um, the mayor of, I should have known better than to try to call something up here. Uh, the mayor farming in Massachusetts, is it? Uh, is a black woman. Uh, and she was just elected. Um, I don't really see them. What are we up to? 38 Republicans have uh, said they weren't going to run again or have resigned so far in a year. And um, as Al Giordano points out, who's a very astute, much more astute political observer than I, that's going to get to way over 50 by the time this is all done. And we're also going to see uh, the people close to him, Nunez, Gates, uh, they'll all start to drop by the wayside too. Um, or is it Getz, that name of that particular congressman? Um, Gomert, King, some of the real hardcore right-wing white supremacist ones because they're too close to him and uh, uh, the feces are indeed hitting the wearing blades. And, and I, I think there's going to be way too much, as we say in uh, uh, the intelligence business where I live, blowback. And uh, I think the blowback is going to get a little crazy. And as a, a, a friend of mine said to me, when this all started last November, when he was elected, he's going to throw everyone under the bus before it gets to him. So I think that was also something that I believe is true still. Um, however, do I believe society's ripped apart? Do I believe our republic has torn asunder? Do I believe we've reached an irreconcilable place of irreparable damage and that we all should be hanging our heads and crying? No. I think you should get out and run for something right this instant. And if you can't run for something, help someone who is running for something. And if you can't do that, just do something. Um, sign an online petition. Write an email. Uh, make it as easy on yourself as you possibly can, but do something. All politics are local. All politics are local. And yeah, registering to vote right now, getting yourself an ID is a real good idea. Mm -hmm. um, and making sure that it's got your picture on it and that it's valid in your state. And make sure you're registered. And make sure you're registered. Even if you think you're registered, go back and check to make sure you're registered. Um, Jennifer wasn't registered in the last national election, we found out, much to our surprise. Um, I thought she'd been skating. I mean, I had my, I called up the commission. I called up uh, Koblock and we had a little chat about you. Uh, sure, Greg Palast had a theory. He thought you'd been wiped off the rolls, but Koblock and I agreed that you were just trying to fake it with someone else's ID. Uh, so uh, do all those things. And here's another couple of things you can do. SheShouldRun.org helps women run for office. Um, if you go to them, they can um, supply you with background. Excuse me. And help guide you on your way, as well as Emily's List. Those are the ones for women. There's also one for um, everyone. It's for millennials. It's for people under 35, and it's called runforsomething.net. 
stroke under. And that's for people under 35. I urge you, uh, if you're a young person, but Greg, you are so old. What do you be doing? I'll be broadcasting from here. You can come and see me. You can come and see old Uncle Greg at any old time at the Bar Lubitsch for no money. But I don't have the money to fly to L.A. Good. Then spend it on this. Go on runforsomething.org and run for office in your town. City councilman, college board, uh, health board, whatever it is. There is something in your town that requires someone. Believe me. Controller. Um, the Board of Equalization, there's people who do tax assessments, they're elected too. Um, look at the level of the people that are being set on courts right now. Trey Gowdy is um, going to step down. Trey Gowdy is from South Carolina and a congressman. He's known for two things, having a very, very upsetting head shape. And what can only be described, uh, uh, his hairdo, what if the, one of the guys from Deliverance had been given a fade from a passing truck? His job in Congress the last few years has been to chase Hillary Clinton to the ground for something she didn't do and wasn't responsible for. The Secretary of State doesn't go to every embassy and make sure that every soldier guarding it is safe all the time any more than Orange 45 goes to the wilds of Africa and looks after units of men who are caught off in the wilderness. Do you follow my drift? He's wasted more time and more money and more of the public's imagination and created more of a wall of lies and been more destructive than almost anyone I can think of outside of Devin Nunez. He's a terrible, terrible liar who's taken money for all the things he's done and now he's leaving, which to me says an excellent opportunity for a woman to swoop in there. And, and don't, I don't want to hear, oh, I live in South Carolina, I don't have a degree. Um, you've seen Trey Gowdy speak. He sweats when he's accusing people because he knows he has no goods. Do you think you could build a more convincing argument than he built in two years, was it? And how many millions of dollars culminating during the election, if you recall, with an 11 hour day on television where she looked like a cucumber eating a popsicle and everyone else in the room looked like a rabid hyena that had had uh, Cajun pepper put in their scooters and that they were jumping around the room. Um, she threw more shade than RuPaul's Drag Race that day. There was, um, there was dandruff wiping. There was eye rolling. There was hair flipping. Um, and after lunch, she seemed ready to go. Like she'd had a Red Bull and a tuna salad. And at that point, the sweating really began on the other side. When they'd ran out of questions and carried on asking the same questions over for a while. I had to go somewhere that day and do a show and came back and it was still on. It was a pretty good day. It was like a, it was like seeing a, a Fassbender film in the uh, in the eighties. It was an all day affair. Uh, in any case, uh, good riddance to him and good riddance to all of them who are leaving. Um, they're not good for you, and they're white supremacists. And I urge you again: she should run dot org. And if you're under thirty five, please take control. Please register to vote. Please tell all your friends it's really really important. If only people under thirty five were represented in the last election, we would be in a very different state than we're in now. I mean that from the bottom of my heart. This is for someone who voted, and you're going to hate me for this. The first presidential election I got to vote in was Jimmy Carter versus Ronald Reagan, and I had to vote for Jimmy Carter, and I did. Um, that was 1980. I was uh, 14, but I had a fake ID. I had no, 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 I, I was, Bernard Cranston was my name, and it was from Connecticut, and it was one of those IDs that, in those days, there were still states that didn't have pictures on their IDs, for real. Anyways, you, you must vote and you must tell all your friends it's more important than anything else you can do. It really, really is. Um, have fun with it. Go to the thing together. Uh, you know, have milkshakes after whatever it requires to get your attention in that area. And I'm talking to the uh, women who are um, young women, uh, the 18 uh, year old to, in the women in their 20s. This is the time to start running for office. When I was in eighth grade in 1972, um, we had the candidates for state Senate come to our school and uh, there was a Republican, a Democrat and an independent and her name was Beth Labson. I'll never forget it. And she was 18 years old. I was 14. So she was almost a peer. She was like an older kid in school and she uh, gave a speech to that day. And I remember being wildly excited that she was one, a teenager and two, a woman. And this was in San Carlos, California in 1972. And how inspiring is that, that uh, she ran? I don't know what, I should have looked her up, but it just came into my head, for goodness sakes. And I remember this, and I've told this story before, but I don't give a shit. Um, 
she said one of the kids in the school because now we were interested because the first guy who got up was a gray-haired fellow and the next guy who got up was you know and they you know when they bipartisan support you bipartisan in front of a group of fucking eighth graders right we're like what the fuck's bipartisan right so <laughs> she gets up and goes and i think she's running for city council or state assembly um uh, i i think 18 year olds should be empowered we have the vote now and we want to see teenage people in office we want to hear teenage voices as part of what society decides what to do with itself we want teenagers to and women to feel and someone asked one of the kids got up and went who are you voting for for president and she went i support george mcgovern and my little group of fucking nazi fascists in san carlos at Tierra linda high uh, junior high boo really yep and i remember thinking jesus christ you guys because I was a McGovern person. I was 12, but I knew who McGovern was, and I knew who Nixon was. <laughs> Believe me, if you grew up in the time of Nixon, you knew who Nixon was. It was like growing up in the time of um, uh, uh, Nero or whatever. Because people compare uh, uh, Orange 45 to Nero. But Jennifer said it the other day. He's not Nero. Nero was cultured and wanted to be admired as an artist. He had the ego of Nero, but he's Heliogobalus, a completely destructive prostitute who usurped power, um, was a terrible um, awful pervert while in office and had no morality whatsoever and basically tried to sell the empire off to the highest bidder. Um, he's sometimes called Eliogobulus and sometimes Heliogobulus, but Gobulus is in his name. And uh, he was also, uh, to, to make it even more piquant, Syrian. Uh, he was a Syrian emperor of Rome. Um, Nero used to go to contests in Greece and whatnot and write, recite poetry. We've gone over this. Um, in that way, um, the speech last night was much like that. He made it super extra long, so everyone had to uh, get up and applaud for him. And everyone who got up and applauded, I want you to note, is a white supremacist. And if they're not a white supremacist personally, they're supporting white supremacy. They're also in collusion with Russia. And if they are not personally taking money to support the collusion with Russia, they are giving it their support by standing up and applauding for it. And this is how you must divide your world from now on. I'm not telling you how to think. I'm saying this is what I believe here from the Fortress of Prupitude. Um, th the lines couldn't be clearer. There is a huge difference between Democrat and Republican now. Democrats wish to continue having a government and a country that represents lots of different people in it. And Republicans don't. They want rich people and white people to run the fucking showboat, and that's that. So here we go. Moving onward. It's almost time to go, but... Oh, I already talked about your Jacob Astorius. Uh, let's see here. We're going to move on from... All the politics. We've had the boring preacher part up first. Ursula K. Le Guin is spinning uh, in, the, um, in the heavens, literally twirling in the heavens, a place that she has inhabited for the last 40 years. Um, 22 novels, 11 volumes of short stories, four collections of essays, 12 children's books, six volumes of poetry, four of translation, Hugo Award, Nebula Award, National Book Award, Pem Malamud. Um, she made Lavinia, was her last novel, an essay collection, Cheek by Jowl and the Wild Girls, she lived in Portland. Of course she did. This is what I wanted to read you from uh, last year. She said this in an interview. As I see it, writing in the arts and the sciences and all learning don't play a role in ensuring our freedom. They are our freedom. The, the heart of it. The arts and sciences are the shared property of each, us, of each of us and all of us in each country. Hey, Miles Davis is calling. And uh, all countries and all centuries. Do you want me to cut that out? No. Okay. They are ideally and sometimes actually where every voice gets to speak and everybody gets to hear what's said. There are true commonwealth. The free press, the honest artist and scientist, accept no orders from above, resist outside control, give free thought, free play. That's liberty in action. Those who want to control the world are terrified by it. They see the enemy in capitals in every first grade classroom. So don't teach, just test she wrote, said, their own demons of selfishness and denial drive them to suppress efforts to discover and share factual truth in the press, in the schools, in the sciences, and efforts to guess at truths beyond the factual in all the arts. Greed, fear, and denial are dead ends. If we try to fight the reactionaries with their own weapons of hatred and contempt, we're letting their acts dictate our acts, following their way. In that direction, there's no freedom and no victory, just wreckage. This is why I love you, Ursula K. Le Guin. Let's go on going our own way, doing our own work. Workers in science and the arts, all workers of any honest work are obliged, at least some of the time, 
to look straight at reality. They see an infinitely complicated world in which right and wrong can't be dictated. And each of us is responsible to God, to other people, to ourself, for our thoughts and acts. And that great world, all things are possible, even peace and freedom. Uh, well done, her. Uh, I'm moving on to another artist who's uh, spinning in the sky named Jack Whitten. Jack Whitten was an Afro-American artist who was having a fantastic late innings. I told you, uh, we talked about Kerry James Marshall last year and went to see his show Mastery downtown here in Los Angeles. Uh, Kerry James Marshall is a little younger than Jack Whitten. I'm going to read you something Jennifer uh, sent me from Art in America. It's an interview with uh, Jack Whitten, whose career was uh, lengthy, 45, 50 years. Um, let's see here. Uh, the interviewer says, I recently spoke with Carrie James Marshall, who believes a black artist should have showed the black figure in their work because of their history of exclusion. What do you think? Um, Jack Whitten says, I go along with that up to a certain point. I agree with him 100% in regard to work from the 60s. But I do believe we've gone beyond that now. I sincerely believe that in the black community of artists, especially those of us dealing with abstraction, Art has to go beyond the general notions of race, gender, nationalism. Things have evolved to the degree where there's a possibility of a new sensibility out there. We're into a global aesthetic here, and anyone who doesn't see that has a real old-fashioned way of thinking. This country still has racial issues. We know that, but we also know that those of us who build something that lies beyond the notion of race have to take advantage of possibilities. We have to grab the opportunity when we have it. I met Jacob Lawrence. He did narrative work. Romar Bearden. Norman Lewis, all of those great artists taught me, all of those artists taught me that a lot of ground has been covered and you do not have to limit your degree of um, expressive freedom. Black artists before me laid a pretty good foundation that allows me to do what I do today. My ass is not floating out there alone. Um, I thought that was um, uh, beautifully put. For much of Witten's career, his work went unrecognized to large segments of the mainstream art world, but the inclusion of his paintings in a, 20, 000, a 2006 exhibition High Times, Hard Times, New York painting, 67 to 75, got and made a big change. In 2014, the Museum of Contemporary Art in San Diego hosted his first major retrospective, which later traveled to the Wexner Center and the Walker Art Center. A 40-work survey of his sculptures will open in 2018 in the Baltimore Museum of Art. We live in very strange times, Jack Whitten says, calmly sipping a mug of tea in his studio before the inauguration of you-know-who. The country might be in the midst of a moral and political freefall, but the painter, a fiercely, fiercely mustachioed raconteur sporting a pigment-spattered white gemsuit, Nike sneakers spray-painted a reflective silver, and a baseball cap dotted with a constellation of colorful dots, is enjoying a gray day's professional revival. His debut solo show with the powerhouse gallery Hauser & Worth, spotlighting recent paintings, is on view in New York through April 8th. Now 77... He's poised to claim a canonical position uh, he's long deserved. Last fall, he was awarded the National Medal of Arts by President Obama. He jokes, I got in under the wire. Uh, well done, Jack Whitten. Um, we're glad you were recognized in your lifetime uh, for the millions of uh, uh, years of achievement and contribution to art, and uh, in particular, African-American art. Uh, in the United States. Another hero, uh, Matilda Krim, who, by the way, was a gunrunner uh, for the Israelis when she was young. She was 91 when she passed uh, into the uh, other uh, realm. This is why you would know Matilda Krim. She crusaded against AIDS, and uh, she was a geneticist and virologist with wide experience in cancer research. Over the next several decades, she became America's foremost warrior in the battle against superstitions, fears, and prejudices that have stigmatized many people with AIDS, subjecting them to rejection and discrimination. I like this part. AMFAR, the Foundation for AIDS Research, um, it, as the ones who released the news of her demise, they did not give a cause. She was 91. That was the cause. Uh, Dr. Krim was researching the possible treatment of leukemia with interferon. In 1980, a physician friend told her he was seeing a set of unusual symptoms affecting gay men in New York. Their lymph nodes were enlarged in their spleens, but they're free of disease. They began to blood test the samples, her and Joseph Sonnabend, and it was the first reported deaths of an American epidemic that's become a global health crisis. I was struck by the totally misguided stigma obviously due to age-old prejudice and ignorance of biological facts that was being attached to the disease, said Dr. Krim. Gay cancer, the gay plague. And then, awesomely, they ran a picture of her with Elizabeth Taylor, Natasha Richardson, and Paul Stevens. Elizabeth Taylor um, rose money, uh, raised money 
for AIDS ceaselessly uh, all through her life and was a champion of gay rights. Dr. Krim had been known as the interferon queen for her uh, single-minded research into the protein's medical potential, but pivoted to research of acquired uh, immune deficiency syndrome. It was uh, spread by the virus, HIV, and she worked to dispel a broad misconception that it was confined to patients of a certain sexual orientation or social status. That's putting it diplomatically. Um, with a $100,000 donation from her husband, politically connected movie mogul Arthur Krim, she founded the AIDS Medical Foundation in 1983 in New York. Um, they, they merged with AMFAR and adopted the current name in 2005. Dr. Krim was a chairman uh, till 2004. Uh, by this time, AIDS was treated largely as the disease, one disease amongst others. A soft-spoken yet forceful champion for AIDS patients, she spearheaded legislation that increased federal funding for research into the disease, called for expanded access, and promoted the use of condoms. Crucially, she enlisted a group of celebrities who helped make AIDS a popular cause. Elizabeth Taylor, Paul Newman, and Joan Rivers. Um, it's just excellent what she did. I'll read you a couple numbers here. She got the Presidential Medal of Freedom from President Clinton in 2000. You remember when President Clinton was president during the peace and prosperity scare of the 90s. AIDS-related deaths have fallen 48% worldwide since they peaked. Uh, the disease remained a pandemic. 36.7 million people were living with HIV and a million died of AIDS in 2016. So it's still an inconceivably important disease. What she did for it um, is immeasurable. Uh, one last hero is swirling in the heavens. A reporter named Robert Perry. During the 80s, uh, we had a president uh, who refused to believe AIDS existed, and his name was Ronald Reagan. And uh, he also ran a covert war of arms and coke for money and information uh, using uh, our um, intelligence services and uh, the armed forces to ferry the cocaine and whatnot uh, into Central America. And Robert Perry and uh, his partner uh, really... Uh, blew it open here. Let's see here. Parallel to the illegal arms shipments to Iran during those days was a cocaine trafficking operation by the Nicaraguan Contras and a willingness by the Reagan administration and the CIA to turn a blind eye to these activities. So if you think any of this chicanery and jiggery pokery and skullduggery is new, it is not. And I will remind you that more people were indicted in the Reagan administration than any administration I can think of. Um, despite the fact that cocaine was flooding in the United States, Ronald Reagan was proclaiming a war on drugs, and that's when crack caught its foothold, uh, and particularly in the African-American community. Bob Perry and his colleague Brian Barger were the first journalists to report on the story in late 85. It became known as the, cocaine con- uh, the Contra Cocaine Scandal, and then an investigation led by none other than John Kerry, uh, that Vietnam War hero. Um, Continuing to pursue leads relating to Iran-Contra, when most of Washington was moving on, Bob discovered there was more to the story. He learned the roots of the illegal arms shipments to Iran stretched back further than previously known, all the way back to the 1980 presidential campaign, which Reagan strangely beat Carter in, the one we were discussing earlier where I voted as a child using a crayon. That electoral contest between Carter and Reagan had come to be dominated by the hostage crisis, right? The Iranians had captured 52 Americans and held them uh, for a long time, over a year. Um, Reagan promised a new start, and uh, he was going to restore Washington as a shining city on the hill by having all of his corrupt cronies come in and snatch and grab and running an, a covert cocaine operation of arms for money. That's how he was going to make Washington shine on the hill. Kind of like when people drain the swamp by bringing in Robert Pruitt, and I'm going to call him Pruitt from now on, uh, and Ryan Zinke. Uh, they were released after Reagan was sworn in, despite suspicions there had been some sort of quid pro quo between the Reagan campaign and the Iranians. Huh. Curiouser and curiouser. Let's see. What was it that undid Carter's presidency? It was the hostage crisis. Reagan was not considered a heavyweight then, even though he'd been governor of California. He had held elected position for eight years. He had had a good deal more experience, uh, like another show business individual who we could name, who took the mantle of the presidency on at quite an advanced age with a minimum of book learning and a little. The other difference was uh, Ronald Reagan could pretend to be avuncular. He had that capacity. I didn't buy it and I didn't like it, but I understood that he can do it. He didn't just make incoherent word salad all the time. Sometimes they'd string Peggy Noonan would write a sentence or something and Reagan would go, well, my fellow Americans, it's with great pleasure that I announce to you that the brave people of Poland have taken control of their own destiny. Right? He would do that kind of shit on TV and everybody cry because he stopped communism, right? Except he didn't. But it was like he did. And it was, you know, having it being it like you did, it was like you did. Uh, in any case, Bob Perry um, 
did a, a documentary on it, and he became convinced that the Reagan campaign sabotaged Carter's hostage negotiations, possibly committing an act of treason to make sure that the hostages were released. It was an inconvenient time in the 90s when the media had moved on. Bob had doubts about his career decisions. That's the kind of dedicated journalist this guy was. He really spent the rest of his life trying to blow that open, something that I believe is at least partially true, that he was in negotiation with the Iranians. You heard the, this week the keeping the sanctions from being enacted that were duly put into law by our Congress was a quid pro quo deal with the Putin administration. So now you've got an example of what one looks like, uh, very material from 1980, where the hostages were released, but not before the election. If they'd been released before the election, it's almost certain Carter would have carried more of the country because his popularity was really hinging on that for a lot of people. Um, strange how the Middle East comes up again. Strange how quid pro quo deals come up again. Strange how... Um, Arms for money comes up again. Strange how foreign governments meddling in our election come up again, isn't it? Uh, he explained, uh, let's see here. Uh, he, he was really an intrepid generalist, our Bob Perry. He tried to tell the full story between, behind the Iran-Contra scandal and the origins of the Reagan-Bush era, ultimately leading to two things, him being pushed out of the mainstream media and the launching of ConsortiumNews.com, which still exists. <clears throat> Excuse me. And you can still go to it. And they still do a little more independent reporting um, than some places. I'll let you go and look at his um, obituary on consortiumnews.com. Uh, he talks about, uh, he was the reporter who really broke the uh, crack cocaine was released into black communities. He, he was at the forefront of that. So you've heard that story. You know it's true. You hear politicians talk about it now. You hear black civic leaders talk about it now. Um, Bob Perry launched that website and... Um, a, a, a thing called IF Magazine. And then Gary Webb wrote a, a Dark Alliance series at the San Jose Mercury News. And that reopened the cocaine contra, uh, contra cocaine controversy with a detailed examination of the drug trafficking networks in Nicaragua and LA that spread highly addictive crack cocaine across the United States. The African-American community in particular was rightly outraged off of the story, over the story, which offered confirmation of many long-standing suspicions that the government was complicit in the drug trade devastating their communities. Now, we have Jeff Sessions coming back with this same war on drugs that uh, was tried in these days, the war on drugs that allowed uh, the Nicaraguans to bring a massive amount of cocaine into the United States, you notice the price of cocaine has remained the same over the last 40 years. I only mention that as a, a point of interest. If it was hard to come by, it would have gone up in price. It is not hard to come by. It is quite easy to come by. Therefore, the price has remained stable because the United States government deems it so. Um, and that... Uh, uh, this war on drugs approach gave us crack, which led to a devastating effect in the black communities in the 90s. Um, the AIDS epidemic that everyone refused to believe was happening outside the gay community, except for heroes like Matilda Krim and Dr. Sonnabend uh, and Dennis Perone, who sought to uh, help alleviate people's pain. So there's plenty of heroes out there. And um, we can all aspire to something. I think uh, their fine example is enough to make us all feel groovy about ourselves. Uh, speaking of Jacob Pistorius, uh, uh, this is uh, something off of uh, Jenny Mitchell, um, who uh, is still swinging with us. Uh, Jacob's on uh, several of her albums, and this is uh, Hygera. In any case, uh, I'll hope to see you on the open road. And uh, may every page you turn be a satchel page. May every bell that you ring be a cool papa bell. And uh, may every... If you have to buy bonds, make sure they're bury bonds. I hope I see you via uh, the Facebook tomorrow at the Lady Parts Justice Telethon because uh, we're going to make everything better. I wish you nothing but love.